All right, well, welcome everybody back to session four. Uh, my name is Brian Schutte, and uh, I'm really honored to be able to participate in this little conference. Uh, today, I'm going to be addressing uh, the topic of why Christian nationalism gets it all wrong. And we've kind of put that under the, under the heading of no lasting city. I want to start with what I think might fairly be characterized as a cheap shot. Okay? And it's right here. Can it? All right. Anybody that's been in Kentucky for more than 15 minutes knows exactly what's on the screen there, right? Many of us are old enough uh, that we were alive when that happened, and an unfortunate number of us actually saw it happen. I went to Western, and then I went to U of L. So I'm not an organic UK fan, but I was enough of a UK fan that I wanted them to win and wanted Duke to lose. And I remember watching that, and we thought we had it. And then, of course, it didn't happen that way. Uh, and you know what an what an unfortunate thing it is. Here's the point that I want to make from show, showing this particular slide is everybody hates to lose. Nobody likes that. And so I, I want to pose a couple of questions. These will become more, more pertinent as we go through this. But are, aren't we tired as believers of losing the culture war? Aren't we tired of seeing good people canceled for speaking the truth? And that's, that's become increasingly common. None of this actually even requires any elaboration. Aren't we tired of being called vile names that ten, tend to end in the word phobe uh, because we espouse views that come straight from Scripture? Uh, aren't we tired of seeing corrupt people manipulate a broken system of justice? Um, and, and I'm an attorney by, by trade, and so that I, I think I have a little bit of insight into that. And I can tell you the perversion of our justice system is profound. If you find it uncomfortable, if you, there's a sense in you that something's deeply wrong here, I, I could not agree more. And aren't we tired of perversion being celebrated as virtue? Again, something that doesn't require any kind of elaboration. So the, our, uh, one of our topics under the general heading of eschatology matters is uh, Christian nationalism. And one way to describe it, and I'm going to spend my time trying to lay out for everybody what Christian nationalism is and why it's wrong, but it's a reaction to the steep decline of our culture by Christians who are tired of losing. And I think we can all understand that, and I think we can identify with that, certainly on, a, on some level. It, what it does is it seeks to tap into that discontent. I've called it here roiling discontent because it's strong um, uh, that Christians are experiencing, uh, but they do it by presenting error in a package that appears to contain sound biblical solutions. So, so the first part of what I want to talk about um, is how false teaching has always been present. It's been present since the beginning of the creation, but particularly, our, I think our focus here is more on the church age, and it's been around since the beginning of the church age, so it's the day of Pentecost. Um, and it always undermines sound doctrine. And so we want to be balanced, and we want to be careful, and want to be humble, and want to be respectful about how we approach it, but we absolutely must approach it. Now, false teaching, as I'm sure everyone would agree, it usually comes from within. It's not always from within our Christian community or our church, but it usually is. Um, but it's always in an appealing package. You know, nobody is going to try to get you to use methamphetamine so that you can end up homeless and toothless and degraded and just ravaged. 
There are, it's always going to be presented in a, in a pleasant package. Uh, but the content, contents of the package are uniformly harmful. And here, this is a really important phrase in, in this presentation to the mission of the church. Okay, and that, that's going to be one of the things that we focus on. So here are just some examples. And what we're trying to do here is kind of look at the sweep of church history, just picking a few examples of false teaching that have challenged the church in carrying out the mission of the gospel. And the, the, the first one is the, what we read about most prominently in Galatians, a first century Jewish legalism, simply the idea that you can be a Christian, but you've got to be an you know, observant Jew observing the ceremonial law if you want to be truly saved. Of course, we know that's not true. That seems to have been followed, or perhaps it was a parallel current, by first century Gnosticism, which, which uh, made this artificial separation between the spiritual and the physical and was kind of bound up in the wisdom uh, ideas of, of the uh, of the Greeks, um, and and of course it's uh, it was not a helpful sort of thing. Um, then I, I'm jumping way forward here, but you had the medieval uh, Inquisition, which was an effort by at the tip of the sword to uh, win people to Christ, and it had varying effectiveness. Um, we have early 20th century modernism, so I'm jumping way ahead again. Uh, and that's, we would also think of that as theological liberalism, where, where uh, not only did uh, people who identified as Christians, we would say in our, in our modern language, not only do they not read Scripture literally, but they begin to question its very veracity and authority. And, of course, we see what's happened. Every denomination that that's happened to has devolved into irrelevance. Um, and then... Closely related to that, and I think following fairly closely behind it, is the social gospel. And what, what the social gospel did was to try to convert the church from a, a gospel-preaching entity, a disciple-making entity, into a social action entity. And, of course, we see the hallmarks of that even today. Uh, and then one that we will be more familiar with because we see it around us so prominently is the prosperity gospel. And those, those are, uh, I guess that would be uh, Christianity for profit in a certain way. I think we can add to this some of these uh, individual rights movements like the feminist movement, the homosexual rights movement. I, I tucked this one in because it's just a burr under my saddle, the creation care movement. And that's a, that's a baptized radical environmentalism. Not just good stewardship of the creation, but uh, something that elevates it to a gospel issue. Uh, and then, of course, most recently, and I'm sure that we have all felt this, the social justice movement or critical race theory. That has, has torn through even parts of the church that we regarded as pretty much impervious to this, that kind of unfaithfulness and, and, and done tremendous damage. Alongside that, maybe a little before it, but also after it, I guess it might kind of straddle that, is the rise of Big Eva. And I think that might be characterized by the church growth movement. It might be characterized by, by uh, celebrity pastors, uh, preachers in sneakers, if you, if you are on Instagram, where they, they show their, their expensive outfits and their $2,000 sneakers and whatnot. And those are ones who purport to be or who represent themselves to be servants of the gospel. And, and, you know, clearly something's missing there. We want to add to this list uh, Christian nationalism. 
And what I can say about these, this list generally is that these movements will burn white hot when they're first introduced, like any other thing, like uh, the slinky or the hula hoop or skateboards or whatever. Um, they do that for a time, but then they fade. But here's the problem. They never really fade away completely because we can see remnants of every single one of those movements in the Christian world and in the church at large today. They're still doing their damage, still interfering with the mission. And Christian nationalism is just the latest movement to challenge the disciple-making mission of the church. Uh, how, how dangerous is it? Why is it wrong? Those are some of the things that we'll, we'll take a look at today. So I've said Christian nationalism a bunch of times. Uh, I think the, everybody else has said Christian nationalism a bunch of times. So it sort of begs the question and uh, may leave you thirsty for a clear definition. But what I'll be able to tell you is I can only give you a warm glass of water. It'll keep you alive, but it isn't really going to quench your thirst. And there's a reason for that. But here's, here's the fundamental premise of Christian nationalism. Christianity and civil government should be fused together so that the government becomes an instrument for carrying out God's providential plan and his promise of covenantal blessings. I've borrowed that last phrase from Albert Moeller, so I've, I, that's what that reference is there. In other words... The church needs to take control of the culture and impose Christian standards of conduct upon it. And I think most people who identify in, uh, with, with Christian nationalism in the way that we're seeking to address it here would have to agree that that is a fair description of the mission of Christian nationalism. But I think we need to be fair and we, we want to be intellectually rigorous and, and objective and as fair as we can possibly be. So let's not just uh, cast our formulations upon Christian nationalism. Let's look at how Christian nationalism describes itself. And I've got a, I've got a few of these that are long, but that, that I think they're worthwhile. So here's how this is the beginning of their description. And it's on a website called Statement on Christian Nationalism. And I think that's trying to emulate some other uh, evangelical-type statements uh, on social justice or in biblical inerrancy. It's kind of like a, a modern church council, in my mind, or mini uh, church council. And so, th so they put together their own effort, and this is the website that lays all of that out. Here's how they describe themselves. Christian nationalism is a set of governing principles rooted in Scripture's teaching that Christ rules as supreme Lord and King of all creation who has ordained civil magistrates with delegated authority to be under him over the people to order their ordained jurisdiction by punishing evil and promoting good for his own glory and the common good of the nation. That is what I would suggest is somewhat helpful, but not really completely satisfying. Does that strike you as a warm glass of water on a hot day? I think that's because we're understanding it. Because one of the problems with Christian nationalism is, is, is it sort of evades definition. It, there's a vagueness into it. I don't know if it's deliberate, but there's an ambiguity to it, a lack of clarity that makes it hard for us to, to put succinct and neat definitions on it. I would suggest that we can compare that to gospel truth. And gospel truth is something that's so simple a child can understand it. In fact, we're admonished to come to gospel truth with, with a childlike faith. You can't come to Christian nationalism in that way. And I'd say that's the first question. 
Christian nationalism, and this is, this is, I think, one of the more prominent statements here. Christian nationalism is primarily concerned with the righteous rule of civil authorities, not spiritual matters pertaining to salvation. The desire for a Christian nation is not a distraction from the gospel, but rather an effort to faithfully apply all of Scripture to all of life, including the public square. If, does that hit you kind of cold? It, it hits me as, as something that right out of the gate, it, um, it's off course. Because, uh, you know, what Christian mission should we be pursuing that isn't concerned with matters pertaining to salvation? I would suggest that the, that list is so short it might not have anything even on it. But this is an, a movement that by, nef, by definition is not concerned with that. It's more concerned with governmental power and authority. And their statement goes on to say, after the Lord Jesus declared his sovereign authority, that's in the Great Commission, he gave the Great Commission and commanded his followers, empowered by his everlasting presence, to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them and teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Our Lord did not exclude all civil authorities from the command to submit to his authority and display allegiance to him. That one's such a striking uh, idea that I've put it on its own slide here. Our Lord did not exclude all civil authorities from the command to submit to his authority and display allegiance to him. That's what's called an argument from silence. The fact that, that it has not been prohibited uh, for them seems to be a sufficient foundation upon which to build an entire movement. Uh, and I, I hope that the ridiculousness of that comes through pretty clearly. I do mean to imply that. I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I don't think I'm smarter than them, and we should always come to these matters with an appropriate degree of humility and giving the benefit of the doubt to the proponents of even these ideas. But that one is pretty hard to manage. I guess I'm pointing at that for you. It's that one. So. They go on to say that we affirm that Christ's commissioning of his church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded, includes civil authorities who are, to be, who are to be called to repentance, faith, and obedience to Christ. We affirm that the church is to instruct civil authorities regarding their identity and duties as servants before the throne of God, and here's the part I want to emphasize. We affirm that this, is, this duty is a great commission issue. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like this is a gospel issue? Uh, and I think it's probably very carefully selected language to not use that, that code language because that code language puts us on notice that someone is trying to add to the gospel. We heard it with regard to COVID shots. We heard it with regard to masks. I'm not trying to take a position on any of that. Um, although I'll let you guess what mine is, um, we we don't uh, we don't allow anyone to add to the gospel some other agenda like racial reconciliation or creation care or any of these other things. Yet our Christian nationalist friends are adding to the gospel the idea of uh, evangelizing nations, not as in the people that make up the nations, but the nations themselves. Uh, and that, that does not seem to be reconcilable with the Great Commission. I just put this one in here. I think I made this point a moment ago, but I wanted to add a little bit of heft to that. Uh, Calvin himself says that ambiguity is the fortress of heretics. And if you think about it, 
all of these movements have in common a lack of a lack of clarity and and that's maybe by design it's certainly a feature of all of them and you you have to have that uncertainty in order to be able to to pull it off and so that that should be a, a bit of a red flag to us um, there are a couple of authors they're sociologists and they are not sympathetic to uh, you know conservative faithful biblical christianity that i that i can tell but here's how they describe it, and it's a pretty fair description of Christian nationalism. Simply put, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework, a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civil life. And so when you compare that to what the Great Commission tells us to do, there ought to be a moment of cognitive dissonance where we, we just can't make those two things naturally come together. And here, Kevin DeYoung, who is a Presbyterian pastor, I don't agree with him on, on uh, some things, but I find him to be a, a pretty useful uh, voice and a good commentator, faithful commentator anyway, on a lot of issues. And here's how he describes Christian nationalism, or the appeal of it. The appeal of something like Christian national, nationalism is that it presents a muscular alternative to surrender and defeat. And I want to tie that into where we started with how tired we may have grown of losing. And if we are just in the moment, you know, and our eyes are kind of horizontally focused without, a, without the proper vertical component to it, we can certainly feel that. And Christian nationalism seems to be a movement that wants to tap into that and to, to harness that uh, in, in a way that uh, causes us some problems. So the, the leading proponents of Christian nationalism, at least that have written books uh, that, that are getting wide attention, uh, would be Stephen Wolf, who you see on the right there, and of course Doug Wilson, who's kind of like the godfather of postmillennialism in the in the current era. And Stephen Wolf has written this really thick book. He's a, a history professor in, in North Carolina, and he is making a case for Christian nationalism. And a lot of what I talk about going for, in the rest of this is drawn from what uh, Stephen Wolf argues in his case for Christian nationalism. I'm not recommending that anybody get these books. Uh, certainly don't buy them. Uh, read them if you think it's appropriate. But I, I would suggest that we do not need to be uh, ver well-versed in witchcraft to know that that's not for us. We don't need to be well-versed in you know, Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other false teaching to know that it's something to be rejected. And so my hope is we'll see enough of Christian nationalism in, in what we're going to talk about today to be able to recognize it. And just once we have been able to recognize it and label it, we can just kind of push it to the side. Certainly we want to be prepared to argue against it, but I think our purpose mainly today is let's, let's figure out what it is as best we can and in the process of that, try to protect ourselves from it. So I pulled a few quotes from Stephen Wolf's Twitter feed just to, to give us a little bit of a sense of things. Um, here, here's, and he, he's got like 14,000 tweets. I think he tweets about every seven minutes. I don't know how he had found time to write this book. I, I truly don't. And uh, thus, while intermarriage, and that's inter-ethnic marriage that he's talking about, is not itself wrong as an individual matter, groups have a collective duty to be separate and marry among themselves. 
Isn't that something that you would expect to hear at a Ku Klux Klan rally? Not in a text arguing for how to live out a Christian worldview? It's, it's a real disconnect for us. And this is an excerpt. It's probably too small for you to read. I've got it here. Um, he, pro- he proposes the idea of a Christian prince. And these are serious. I'm not, these aren't mischaracterizations. That's why I'm reading from the text that he wrote. And here's, here's what he is saying that Christian prince would be like, this civil leader that Christians would put into place to carry out the, uh, the gospel or the great commission imperative of evangelizing the nations by taking political control. Having the highest office on earth, the good prince resembles God to the people. Indeed, he is the closest image of God on earth. This divine presence in the prince speaks to his role beyond civil administration. Through him, as the mediator of divine rule, the prince brings God near to the people. The prince is a sort of national God, not in the sense of being divine himself or in materially transcending common humanity, or as an object of prayer or spiritual worship or as a means of salvific grace, but as the mediator of divine rule for this nation as one with divinely granted power to direct them in their national completeness. What's the word that comes to your mind when you hear that? Pope. Another word that comes to my mind, at least getting really close to it, blasphemy. To to confer upon a Christian prince this quasi-messianic status and to imbue him with a messianic mission like that is, uh, is really quite stunning. And that they, this is not just an isolated quote taken out of context. That's really what they're arguing. And uh, this is another quote where he's talking about American ethnic relationships. So until the 1960s, these were givens in America, in American ethnic relations. Number one, America is an Anglo-Protestant country meaning that is the dominant ethnicity. Number two, newcomers were expected to conform to that ethnicity. Uh, Conformist mode of assimilation is how he describes that. For most of American history, there was a dominant and confident uh, ethnic uh, ideal or identity that expected those outside of it to conform to it. Does that bother anybody else? Does that seem like, uh, gosh, that seems a little bit, and dare we use the word because it's the one that, you know, conservatives get hammered with so much. That doesn't mean it's not a useful word, but doesn't that sound a little bit racist? I think it does because it is. Now, they, they would vehemently deny that, obviously, but it's hard to deny what's apparent on the face of their, their own writings. So I watched in, in my preparation for this a, uh, about a 40-minute presentation that Stephen Wolf made, and th- that's, the, uh, there's, that's the YouTube link to it. And the title of it was Gods of the Earth, the Role of Civil Magistrates. And, and through that, he lays out sort of his thoughts about how we find a leader that, that fits this description and can carry out this function and, and he said a, a number of things, but I, I want to characterize it sort of globally before looking at any of the particulars. What, what became quickly apparent is this is not a scripturally grounded approach. 
And that if there's anything that, that our hermeneutics uh, studies have taught us, and, and I think just attendance at a faithful you know, Bible-teaching church would teach us, is, is that everything that we do needs to be grounded in Scripture in some way. But what I saw in his presentation was for about 40 minutes, he drew from the lessons of history. You know, he was touting George Washington as, as this great man, a prince of sorts, if you will. And to say those are the kinds of examples that we need to look to to find inspiration so that we can find this Christian prince who will then help lead us into a, an age of uh, dominance of Christianity in the culture by gaining control of, of the civil authorities. So his theme is that of the great man um, and how God expects uh, rulers to be of a certain caliber, which is just a, you know, it's a little bit of a twisted idea. Certainly we want our leaders to be great, but uh, to, to cast that in, in these quasi-messianic terms is just a, it's a step too far and a step removed. Now, these folks are working very, very hard to propagate Christian nationalism. And in fact, it's kind of the premise of this whole conference. It's why it's being, I guess, put into this uh, eschatology series, because eschatology is the remedy, as, as we've heard. But they're, they're holding conferences, and this is one that's coming up next March. It's going to be in Taylor, Texas. If you're going to be there between March 1st and 3rd, it's only 200 bucks a person. That's early bird pricing. Um, and they're, they're going to be teaching... Uh, seven doctrines for ruling the world. And I just want to show you, that's a direct quote. It's a little bit difficult to see, but that's a direct quote. They're calling it seven doctrines for ruling the world. The first one is reformed confessional theology. And that's one that I don't think most of us would have any difficulty with. Uh, I think it's probably just that they carry it too far. You know, we, we believe the confessions have value as an organized way to uh, articulate the faith. It's, it's of secondary importance, Scripture's primary, but that's a good way to, to look at it, like the Westminster or the London Baptist or what have you. Um, and so that's one that we would not necessarily immediately reject. There are a couple of those. Number two, it would be covenant theology. And covenant theology in and of itself is possibly a useful sort of tool for us to understand God's promises to his people. But they take this covenant theology to kind of an extreme. Uh, uh, Pedo-baptism instead of credo-baptism. You know, you, you become a part, you're pre-saved by being baptized as a baby and then later conversion comes. But you, you experience the covenant blessings by being baptized into the covenant uh, as, as a child, an infant. And so they, they really carry that too far. Here's where they get uh, so far afield that most reasonable people, I would argue, are going to part ways with them here. And that is a rather extreme uh, version of biblical patriarchy. Now, certainly, as complementarians, we believe that God has designed men and women with unique roles, and we recognize that uniqueness, and we recognize the implications of that uniqueness. But we don't carry it to such an extreme, just, just to illustrate it, my wife and I have been joking about this recently, and I'm not saying this is necessarily an official position of the Christian nationalist movement, but it's an example of what um, one of the adherents to it said with a straight face, and that is that 
men should screen all of the books that their wives read before they read them. And they should not be permitted to read anything that the husband has not first read. Um, in the more extreme expressions of biblical patriarchy, um, men should not be under the authority of women in any sphere of life. There is an ethic of discouraging women to get educated, of, of discouraging women from working outside of the home. And of course, what they are projecting upon them is the expectation to have children only and to be homemakers only um, and to not be able to do anything that would be uh, a threat to masculine um, expression in its maximum form. So I don't think we have to uh, join the National Organization of Women to reject that. Can we agree with that? And so I did ask my wife the other day, have you been reading any books that I haven't approved? And so, and then I scraped my, my supper out of the trash can and ate it as best I could. They also adhere to, and one of their seven doctrines is the idea of presuppositionalism. And that's a slippery concept to me. Here's the best explanation that I can offer for that. Um, it assumes, and it's an apologetics idea, but it assumes the existence of God. And, uh, and in that sort of a narrow framework, the law of God being uh, authoritative, uh, rather than trying to prove that it's true, it assumes that it's true and then argues for its application. Um, I think certainly we would agree that uh, with respect to the authority of Scripture, we're presuppositionalists. We come to the Scripture with a conviction that it's true. It's our starting point, really, because the Scripture is our authority. And so in that sense, we would agree with them. But uh, that may be one of those where we could live a little more comfortably with them. But then we get to number five, which is Kuiperism. I'm sorry, Kuiperianism which is named after Abraham Kuyper, um, who was, I believe, a Dutch uh, prime minister. And if you, you've heard his ideas, um, it, you know, there is not one square inch of the creation over which Jesus does not say mine, if you've heard that idea before. But where, where he, I think, goes a little too far in applying that is uh, we are to go out and conquer the culture by being involved in every single cultural institution. So we will reclaim the university system by populating it with Christians or the education system. You know, we'll fill government with Christians to such a great degree that uh, government begins to reflect uh, the values of the kingdom. And so, and that same would be true of business, law, all the way down the line. So that, that's Kuyperianism. And I guess just think of that as a, as a very um, proactive way of, uh, of gaining control of societal institutions. They also believe in general equity theonomy. All right, and that, that one's another one that, that uh, can be a little bit of a slippery uh, idea. Here's the, here's the gist of that. It's arguing that the, that the law of God should be embodied in the civil laws of the nation. I've oversimplified it a little bit. That, that's my best understanding of it. And while we would agree with that to a degree... We would never be able to go as far with it as they would because we won't have a Christian prince to you know, carry all of that out for us. Um, and then lastly, and, and kind of connecting it to all of our points here, they have their hopeful eschatology, uh, also known here as postmillennialism. 
And, and the, the absurdity of postmillennialism should be so apparent to us, and again, I say that respectfully, but it should be so apparent to us that anybody that has that as a part of their foundation, we're going to have to be careful about anything else they tell us, including, well, the way to live this out is through Christian nationalism. They cannot reconcile Christian nationalism with premillennial, or I would suggest a biblical ex- ex- eschatology. And, and they're pretty clear about that. There's just no room in the Christian nationalist worldview or movement uh, for those who embrace uh, what we would characterize as a biblical reading of end times events and prophecy. And so that really is kind of the deal killer for all of us here, right? But that, that's, uh, that's not necessarily true because they're making great inroads into the amillennial world. Uh, and and there, it's very much in the Reformed tradition, as you can see from some of these other doctrines for ruling the world. But that's, uh, that's where they're headed, and that's, that's the tell for us. Um, and I, I just wanted to show you who some of the speakers are. Uh, and these are some of the prominent folks in the movement. Obviously, not everyone who's prominent in the, in the movement is going to be at that conference. But these are, are five pretty familiar names for anybody that's done any kind of exploration into this. And again, we've got the uh, post-millennial um, cheerleader of, of, of great renown, Doug Wilson. Um, there's a British guy named Dr. Joseph Boot who's done a lot to articulate the post-millennial view. And obviously that's joined tightly to this Christian nationalism idea. Um, there's a guy named Brian Suave. Um, I'm not as familiar with him. But then uh, Eric Kahn and Joel Webin. And I've called this the luxurious beard crew. Because with the exception of Joseph Boot, all of these guys have really, really nice beards, don't they? With due respect to Mark, who does have an excellent beard that makes me feel inadequate. But I offer these to you for those who are aspiring YouTube theologians. If you watch any of these folks, just know that they are coming from a foundation of post-millennialism and Christian nationalism. And whatever they tell you, um, it may be true in part, but not in whole. Um, and so let me give you, this is, this is one of their most active promoters, a guy named Joel Webin. He's a pastor down in Texas. And he says, the post-millennial hope is grounded in the biblical truth that God is sovereign over all things and that Christ will progressively expand his kingdom throughout the whole world through the battering ram of the church. So we should be able to pretty easily connect that with some of what uh, Steve and Nathan talked about before, which is they believe they're going to bring about the kingdom. Jesus is going to come back once that we've completed our work as the church here on earth. That should be so obviously troubling to us that that alone also would allow us to discard Christian nationalism in its entirety. And if that's not enough, let me give you the kill shot here. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the rook. Um, this is a, a screenshot of a video that Joel Weber, uh, Webin did. It's about 11 minutes. It's entitled John MacArthur and Losing Theology. And he spends those 11 minutes criticizing MacArthur's statement on uh, the premillennial view and, and where uh, Dr. MacArthur is criticizing uh, post-millennial uh, in particular views. And he says, we don't win here. Well, I think we know that. And in fact, that's kind of one of the, the 
themes of what we're talking about here today. We don't win here. And, and isn't that good? Because this to win this is to get a pretty faulty prize. You know, it, it's not, not, uh, not really something that's worth that much. Um, but what MacArthur, I think, is identifying is this, this ongoing decline until the point where God says, okay, that's it. And Jesus comes, raptures the church, and then, as Steve says, all hell breaks loose. Well, Webin really tries to ridicule, and in my, in my view, uh, in a rather condescending way, uh, tries to take uh, MacArthur to task. And it's really kind of like an angry five-year-old trying to beat up uh, a grown-up. You know, it, it just uh, it doesn't play well. I would probably commend that one to, to your viewing John MacArthur and loser theology. If you do, if you put in loser theology and Webbon, W-E-B-B-O-N, you, you'll find that one, and that probably will give you enough of a flavor for this that you'll you'll have a, a good sense of what Christian nationalism is about. So I want to I want to as I move here toward the end of this, identify the top seven problems with Christian nationalism. Uh, the first one is it seems to be really naive, and what I mean by that is. These folks believe that they're going to accomplish by seizing civil authority and, and you know, baptizing it, so to speak, um, that they're going to be able to accomplish what's never been accomplished in history and what no government has ever even come close to in history. And, and I think the reasons are obvious. The most obvious reason they can't be successful at that is that's not God's plan. The second reason is that the, the broken human heart, sinful human heart, is not capable of that much uh, remodeling or that much restoration, if you want to use some of their language. It, it's, a, it's naive to believe that. Secondly, it's ethnocentric. And, and to be really clear, the ethno that they like is white folks. All right? That should not sit well with us. That, that should be something that when you look at the composition of the great multitude uh, that is worshiping at the throne of the Lamb, it's not just one group. It's not just the Jewish people. It's not just, just Caucasian people or whatever. It's, it's just really problematic. As a matter of fact, they spend a lot of their time defending accusations of what's called kinism, which is the idea that you should prefer your own kinfolk or your own e- ethnicity or your group and that's what that intermarriage comment is about. You need to marry within your group. And uh, it's really hard to, to put that in a neutral light. And I, I think that's a, that's a fatal flaw in Christian nationalism. Number three is it promotes an unbiblical patriarchy. And, and it, I think we probably covered that one adequately already. Number four is it results in an unhealthy machismo. I mean, excessive masculine uh, promotion. And one of the things that they like to talk about is that the premillennial eschatology does not appeal to young men. Which, if you think about it, that's kind of ridiculous. Since when have we framed truth based on how much it's going to appeal to somebody? Now, if, if we want to join the seeker-sensitive movement, then that, that's probably a valid question. But if, if we are seeking to faithfully carry out our, our privilege and our obligations under the Great Commission, the only thing we care about is speaking truth and speaking it as, as, as well as we possibly can. But they've kind of injected this little bit of pragmatism into it. 
Well, now, premillennial shows a downward trend, and that's not uh, going to be appealing to young men, so you won't be able to bring them into the church. L and let me illustrate that uh, just a little bit in this way. My wife and I have, for the last several years, had a pretty deep interest in eschatology. And, you know, there are things that, you know, if we're in the third quarter now, or, or maybe at the beginning of the fourth quarter, there are things that that premillennial eschatology teaches us that do not promote a great sense of optimism for this life. But of course, you know, we're, we're sort of just middle age, but that as you get older and older, this life looks worse and worse. And you know, that we don't have as much to look forward to literally as we once did, but we're pretty careful about how we discuss these things around our kids who are in their twenties and both married. And the oldest one has a, has a child, my granddaughter, and, you know, that's the kind of stuff that a young person may have a little bit of trouble with. Well, how cynical is it to try to exploit that by promoting an eschatology that tickles the ears? And certainly post-millennial eschatology tickles the ears, and Christian nationalism is, is essentially defined by that. The fifth thing is that it, it overemphasizes covenantal blessings. And let's tie this to the statement that we're mostly concerned with the impact of, of Christianity on the civil authorities and not so much about salvation. Well, that's, that's, a, that's kind of an extreme manifestation of, of a covenant theology idea. And I say an extreme because there are legitimate lanes for covenant theology, but I think there's a way to take it too far. If any of you are familiar with N.T. Wright or Tom Wright, uh, he, he's a, a British theologian and occupies a high position in the Anglican church. He has uh, reimagined Paul, basically kind of rewritten uh, Pauline theology. And, and the way he does that is to kind of move in this direction that places a hyper emphasis on the covenants and, and joining the covenants. And it's kind of like a group salvation idea rather than the individual salvation that we would suggest is the more biblical view of it. Certainly there are collective impacts to individual salvation, but no one's going to go to heaven or go to hell based upon the, the uh, status of a parent. You know, the, I won't be saved because my grandfather was saved. Uh, I won't go to hell because my daddy wasn't or whatever. It's not a, it's not a genetic trait that gets passed on. And this whole idea of covenant uh, covenant blessings, when taken to its extreme, goes there. And I think the only way you can get to the place where you elevate civil authority and the idea that the church is to grab a hold of civil authority and use it as a tool, it, you have to go there with the covenantal blessings in order to do that. And that's just a step too far removed from the truth. Number six is the next. It's sixth in the list here. But I would say it's maybe one of the most dangerous aspects of this, and that is that it promotes nominalism, meaning in name onlyism. How many people under a system that rewards Christianness, uh, how many people in that system are going to proclaim to be Christians because it helps them to move up in the culture and in the government, which now will be one and the same, when they aren't really sincere believers? You know, we, we don't have to look very far to see examples of insincerity in the Christian community. And this would simply give it a, a, the greatest incentive, perhaps, 
that it's maybe ever been given if, if this naive system were to actually take hold, which it won't, but just for whatever that's worth. And then lastly, and I think this is the, the, this, the idea that wraps it all up. We can put it all in this package. It is the product of worldly thinking. And, and we can use that description for all of these false teaching movements that have challenged the gospel mission of the church they're really just the product of, worth, of worldly thinking. They are drawing their ideas, as I said, with Stephen Wolfe saying, let's find our prince by looking at history, okay, and draw the lessons of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Douglas MacArthur, and uh, I think he used uh, President Roosevelt, uh, second President Roosevelt, as an example. Well, that's just worldly thinking. Let's put a little sharper point on that. What is worldly thinking? Ultimately, when it's expressed as, a, as a, an idea within the Christian church, it's a doctrines of demons. So if we're going to build our understanding of the world on the doctrines of demons, we can't for a moment think that we're doing the right thing. And that's really where Christian nationalism rests. So that brings me then to this question, is Christian nationalism a deception or is it a distraction? You know, and I think that speaks to the idea that these false teaching movements are of varying degrees of falsehood. But at the end of the day, I'll suggest it doesn't really matter. Okay, if if someone is distracted, that's as as effective in taking them off the mission as it is if they are fully deceived. I can turn going the wrong way down a runway, uh, down a one-way street, and have a head-on collision with somebody. And I did that because I was deceived into thinking I was going the right way. Or I can be on my phone and take out a row of parked cars. And uh, I've seen that in my law practice, by the way. Um, does it really matter? Either way, I've wrecked, right? And so, whether Christian nationalism is a of complete deception or of just distraction. It's enough either way to get us to the wrong place. Um, which brings me to my near landing point. Um, and I want to give you some labels to put on Christian nationalism that will tie it to some other ideas. Christian nationalism equals the Reformed prosperity gospel. So think about that. That's not everybody gets a Cadillac, right? Or, or a Mercedes or whatever. Um, it is everybody gets uh, the culture that they want in a, in a land that uh, is modeled after our sovereign purpose for how the culture should be. It's also just the prosperity gospel 2.0. So for those reasons, we should steer as far away from it as we can. And here's why. And I get one verse for mine. Only one, uh, um, and that is Hebrews thirteen fourteen. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And and I think that's a sledgehammer that obliterates Christian nationalism right there. And if you want to look further into this, go to Hebrews eleven, uh, which is the Faith Hall of Fame, and look at how those saints responded to this world and to the allure of this world, and in the process of that. You'll come away thinking, how could any serious-minded, faithful person look at Christian nationalism and say, hey, that looks like a pretty good idea? Now, I'm not suggesting that anybody delve into Christian nationalism by buying their books and you know, watching all their YouTube videos or going to their conferences. 
If you want a good idea, though, on how, how properly to approach uh, government as a, as a faithful believer with good eschatology, I would recommend a book by Jesse Johnson. It's a really short book. It is about 128 pages, 127 pages. And we heard him at the Shepherds Conference back in March of this year. And he, gives, he lays out... Uh, essentially what is two-kingdom theology and how to understand that we exist in this world for now, but in the world to come forever. And we are certainly present here, but we're here as sojourners. We're just passing through. We're exiles. We have certain responsibilities that we still need to carry out here, but this is not to be the place of our ultimate, uh, ultimate affections or our ultimate efforts. And so with that, I thank you for your attention.